Let's get into 15 facets of love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. I'll open us with prayer. We'll read the text and then we will pick it up. Father, we come before your throne rejoicing. Father, I thank you for my brother Alex and what you've done in his life. And Father, your faithfulness to draw him into your kingdom, into your righteousness. And Father, for your faithfulness to draw him today to believers' baptism. That Father, he publicly professes you before us. And Father, we who are called by your name, now with eager, eager expectations to walk with our brother as he encourages us, Father, allow us to encourage him. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our souls widely to this text out of Corinthians. And Father, help us to hear. Father, help us to understand what is the possession of every child of God. We don't earn this. We don't achieve this. We, Father, we receive this. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for this text. And may we, called by your name, draw deeply, drink deeply, immerse ourselves in the love that is Christ. Amen. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is an amazing text, if you're truly honest with yourself. One of the things that I want you to think about this text is where does it fall? Okay, it falls between 12 and 14. It's math. No, it falls right in the middle of what you and I will call the context of spiritual gifts. But it's the hinge pin of a church that is suffering. And it's suffering because it has a lack of love. Chapter 1 says when it came to gifts, what were they lacking? Nothing. If you look at the foundation stones that were put in, They were built on a strong foundation, solid theology. But here's one of the things I want you to remember is 2 Corinthians starts warning them about listening to these false teachers, false apostles. Why? Because once you let the flesh drive the bus long enough, what will you be susceptible to? No, no, no. I'm not talking about apostates. I'm not talking about people who made a verbal profession and never really grabbed the faith of Jesus Christ and walk away. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the saints of God who allow their flesh to control them long enough that their flesh will tell them what they're hearing. It must be truth because it is pleasing to me. Paul warned Timothy in his last letter that he ever wrote that difficult times will come. Difficult times will come. And he's speaking of the body of Christ. He says, difficult times will come because men will become lovers of themselves. And he concludes the the whole text there, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, with this thought. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Look around, brothers and sisters, and tell me where we're at. 
Tell me where we're at. Okay? They will heap to themselves teachers that do what? Entertain them. They entertain them. Why? When you start wanting your ears tickled, what happens to the love? It's gone. It's mute. It's a non-existent entity. So when I look at this text, we all sit there and go, man, I've had a couple of conversations with some of you. Man, that's brutal. That long-suffering thing, gee, many crickets. When I'm wronged and wronged and wronged and wronged, I continue. He says, that was really tough. But then you tell me I'm supposed to be useful to them after they've wronged me? Love suffers long. Love does deeds of kindness. Love is never jealous. This text is the portrait of Christ. It is the portrait of love. It comes out of this portrait because Jesus Christ is love. That's what He is. Now, I want you to think about it because when I was going through the spiritual gifts in 12, I kept saying each of us have this... um, combination of gifts that the Holy Spirit paints so that each of us will show up as a dot, a color, a scheme on the portrait that is Christ revealed to a lost and dying world today. And each of us have a position in that portrait. If I decide I want to be the nose portrait and I'm supposed to be the ear portrait, then it looks like Jesus got a nose on his ear. And people look at it and say, what's wrong with him? Okay, so he has this portrait that he has painted. And he lays it out here in 437. This is the portrait of who I am. See, if I go around, remember how I concluded chapter 12? I don't want you to quit desiring the showy gifts. Quit it. Let me show you a a more excellent way, a better way. So he, Christ have his church to be a whole bunch of little reprints of him. He, through his spirit, Christ through his spirit, would like to reproduce his portrait in us. It's no longer I who live. Why? I have been crucified with Christ. But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. So who, who is the life? So when we look at verses 4 through 7, I want you to think about this. This is key. When we look at verses 4 through 7, without any stretch of the imagination, you can be biblically illiterate. Okay? But you know enough about the person of Jesus Christ. I can look at 4 through 7 and see Christ. He's right there. So Paul's given in verses 4 through 7 is a portrait of Christ. All right, God wrote the Bible. We all got that? The human vessel for this text was the Apostle Paul. All right, we want to look at each other. When we look at these, we think, you know, man, if, if I had a husband who would love like this, or if I had a wife who would love like this, or if my pastor would love like this, or if the Sunday school would this, okay? And see, you completely miss that thing. You have missed this text by a continent. You've missed the text by a continent. Because we have the text, 
It is written to the Corinthians. It is written to us. Us. That would be you and I. And what you have here is Christ looking back at us, at you and I, to see if in fact, if the portrait is reprinted. You get that? He's looking at you and I and say, what is the facsimile? Is this reproduced in us? Is this reproduced in you and I? See, Paul pointing is pointing this out to the Corinthians and into us. What is love? Because I got news for you. Before we moved into this text, I could have gone to every one of you and got a completely different definition of it. What is love? It is not defined. It's not a defined philosophy. It's not a defined ideology. It can only be described as a function. You don't define love. You describe love. When it says God is love, He's saying Look at me. Look at me. Look at my actions. Look at my character. Look at my nature. Look at my deeds. Thus you see love. Jesus Christ fits the picture. 4 through 7. Okay, remember, verbs describing, 4 through 7 are verbs describing how love acts. How love acts. Paul is giving us and I would have to say it's to be the biblically the greatest, most far-reaching, broad description of love that has ever been penned by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. And he just does it in the economy of these four verses. Three verses. Fifteen points. This is love. This is Christ. And you know what's amazing about this text? I've, I've heard people the argument, the Bible it just doesn't have things that are practical. Really? These, 4 through 7, are tremendously practical, wouldn't you say? But I would also add this. They are intense. I'm not sure I would say they are intensely practical, but I know they are intense. And even though it is a portrait of Christ Jesus, listen, isn't exalting His character? Oh, duh. Okay, it exalts his character. At the same time, you you and I will look at it and say, "That's Christ, Jimmy Crickers. I'm not God." Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This is a rubber meeting the road of what Christ wants to reproduce in us on a daily, moment by moment time. What is it to be a Christian? Four through seven. You know, people people get on me. You don't know the hearts of people. I don't. I don't. I know man, though. I've been around long enough to see he has a consistent pattern. Okay? And I see people who walk and look just like lost people, and I base it on four through seven and say, I don't think you're saved. Well, how can you say that? Because you don't reflect Christ by any stretch of the imagination, not even on your best day. I've never seen you do it. Oh, you can't say that. Listen, this is presenting a portrait of love in a contrast to the behavior of the Corinthians. 
Okay? It is presenting a portrait of love in the contrast of your behavior and my behavior. Here's Christ. Here are you. How you doing? That's what Paul's doing. The implications are all over the place. They are, the Corinthians are opposite of this. They need to hear what love is because they don't have it. They don't have it. I had a discussion this morning in my Sunday school class. Hey, you know what? You can't find a Christian who does not, with overwhelming gratitude, appreciate salvation, do they? <laughs> they just get, some of them get teary-eyed, make a hair stand up, goosebumps, all kind of weird stuff. How many Christians do you see appreciate the substitutionary life? You are not your own. You've been bought and paid for with a price. But what about mine? No. How many appreciate that? How many appreciate that? Why? I don't think we have the love. All of this is presented in opposition to what the Corinthians have, and I believe it shouts loud to what the church is today in America. Paul is saying love is very, very patient, long-suffering. You're not. You're short-fused. You're retaliatory. You want to get your vengeance. You want your pound of flesh. Paul is saying love is very kind. It is useful. It spends itself in its usefulness. How many of us are frequently unkind? It's a burden. It's a waste of time. I don't have time for that. Love knows absolutely no jealousy. How many of us are jealous on wanting what somebody else has. Love doesn't make a parade. It doesn't run around and say, look at us. How many of us are prideful? Love is never rude. How many of us are rude? Love is never selfish. How many of us are self-centered? Love never gets indignant, irritated. How many of us get irritated? Love is never resentful. How many of us resent other people, even saints? Love never is happy when someone else goes wrong. Love is only glad and goodness. Always slow to expose a fault. Eager to believe the best. How many of us are judgmental? How many of us love to wait for somebody to stumble? Just so I can, we need to pray for such and such because they bit the big one but again. We do it. But love doesn't do that. Love covers a multitude. Of sins. See, that's the approach that he's taking here. Paul is giving all the positives of love, and when you give the positives of love, you expose the negatives of the Corinthian assembly and perhaps us. Listen, what the Corinthians are doing is no different than us in the flesh. We can and we will see the opposite of this text in our lives. Why? When our flesh raises up, The love is gone. 
Listen, I want you to think with me on this because this is amazing to me. I watch people say, well, this is impossible. You can't expect us. You're being a legalist. You want us all to walk out and walk like Jesus. No, Jesus wants you to walk out and walk like Jesus. Okay, I ain't worried about you guys. I'm still struggling with me. Look what he says. Do you understand this? In, in the book of Genesis, do you man, know that man was created in the image of God? Do you understand that when you read that, everybody says, well, we have free will, and they go off on the wrong road on that thing. Listen, if we were created in the image of God, love was man's possession. It belonged to us. It's already ours. And all of these characteristics that you see in 4 through 7, they belong to man. But when the fall came, it was lost, wasn't it? You see jealousy, you see envy, you see all of it, the pride, everything. And I mean, it's right out the gate. The image of God was marred. Love was marred. Okay, the image of God, not God. Man was created in God's image. I don't want you to think I'm a heretic here. That, you know, God got marred because we fell. No, his image, which was reflected in man, was marred. Love was marred. And therefore, when you talk to people today, that's why you get so many weird definitions of what is love. So man in and of himself, unregenerate man, is loveless. There isn't there. It is self-centered. It is pride. It is jealous. It is envy. You can go through and it is the opposite of what you have in 4 through 7. That's man's love. Okay? Unregenerate man is loveless. There is no love. But... The carnal, the fleshly Christian, guess what he is? Loveless. It ain't there. So, when you hear me say to somebody, are you saved? Don't sit there and say, well, you can't judge the heart. What I'm saying is, you don't reflect the image of he who created you. I'm doing it for your own good. You act like you're lost. And when you act like you're lost, if you cross my path, I bet you that I tell you. And I will do my best to do it in love. You make me mad, I hit you in the head and say, you're just lost. No, just kidding. So Paul details what love is in these verses. All right? Remember, the first three verses says, this is kind of important. Okay? It's very practical. You know what? It's, you know, it's so practical. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. It is so necessary for every child of God. I don't care who you are today. This is necessary. You need to be holding the mirror up and looking into it and saying, hey, what do I see? We've looked at these. We've looked at a couple of these. Suffers long. There's no spirit of retaliation. Absolutely, totally forgiving and everything. Secondly, it's kind. It's useful. It's useful. Love uses itself to help others. Okay, it's not jealous. Okay, and I showed you that jealousy, or there's two different kind of, there's a superficial, I wish I had what they had, but then there's that deeper jealousy that I wish they didn't have what they have. It means to boil, that simmering underneath it, I'm telling you what, that, that kind of stuff. Okay, and you know, and I've had a couple of people say, man, those tough, that was tough three. And I said, yep, that was. Wait till you check this next one out. It makes the first three look simple. Because you know what? 
this is the one that in the months that I have been studying this text, for whatever reason, I'm hearing a lot. Okay, now everybody's going to say, I ain't sitting around talking to him ever again. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say that. I, if I made eye contact with you, it's not necessarily you. Um, but I am just telling you, I hear this a lot. It says here, does not brag, and then there's another phrase that says, is not arrogant. Okay, um, arrogant is puffed up. Okay, if you listen to the two of them, you say, well, that's, they almost sound synonymous. They're, they're parallel. Um, they're not. They're not. The first statement, okay, that you see there that we're going to deal with today, does not brag, is the verbalizing of pride. Uh, um, Linsky said it's the speech of pride in action. Okay? The second one that you see there, arrogant, um, is the attitude of pride. It's the conceit of the heart. It's that down inside. Okay? Um, the, f- <laughs> the word here does not brag in the original language. The root literally means windbag. Okay? It's verbalizing hot air that comes out of a mouth of a conceited, proud person. And that's literally what it means. And here's what's amazing. It's only used here in the New Testament. I mean, and if you go backwards, you look at the Corinthians saying, well, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I'm a humble man. I am of Christ. And what is that? It's conceit. It's conceit of the heart, and it comes out, poof. It's hot air. It floats a balloon. And what he's saying is love is not a windbag. Love is not always shooting off its mouth about its own accomplishments. Bummer. Love does not speak um, arrogant, baseless chatter that is designed to make me look better than you. A braggart. Pride is the problem. Pride is a problem. It comes out of the fact of of the arrogance. He says, love does not speak of oneself. Bragging. Here's here's the root and the the syntax of it is, is an effort really to make other people feel bad. If you really look at the flow of it, it's the flip side of envy in verse 4. Okay, see, envy has that two levels to it. Okay, the, the superficial says, I want what you've got. Uh, the deep down boiling is, I don't want you to have what you've got. And if you flip that over, the person who brags is trying to make the other person envious, jealous. Envy is wanting something that another person has. Bragging is making the person want what you have. Or your abilities. 
listen, man, I, let me illustrate this and I, so you, you can understand. I've seen this. Um, and, and maybe I'm more keenly attuned to it because I'm going through this and have been for a couple of three months. But have you ever heard people sit around and tell a marvelous story? Something phenomenal. I mean, not a make-believe story, but the, uh, this happened or this happened, this happened. And, and, and you listen and, and you see people sitting around listening, dying till they are done so that they can tell a bigger story. You ever seen that? I remember years and years and years and years ago, I was in a counseling group. Don't hold it against me. Nothing personal. It was 20-some years ago. It was court-ordered. It's a long story. And I listened to this group. There was about 15 or 20 people in the group. And I was sitting there. I was the new guy in the group. Just sitting there. And all these people were talking about what had happened to them. And it started here. And, you know, I was born in a you know, dysfunctional family and all that stuff. And it kept going around. And it kept escalating. Man, by the time it got to me, I was like, I'm a saint. Dude, you guys are like mass murderers and things. But it was funny because each person kept getting bigger and bigger. And I'd been dirt and dirt and dirt. And you're sitting there going, oh my word. These people are crazy. Why is it? Now listen, it was a group of unsaved people. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it was just boasting on what I've done. But you know what? I see that in Christendom. I see that in Christendom. Somebody telling something phenomenal that has happened and people dying, just dying to get into the middle of it and say, well, let me tell you what God did for me. It's the idea of bragging to make somebody feel like you are superior to them. I did this. Well, you ain't going to believe this. I did this. Okay? That is the opposite of love. Because love says, now grab a hold of this. Love says, I want you to feel superior. And I'll take the role, I'll take the place of servant to you. There you get you get that? Love doesn't brag. It wants the other person to feel superior. Love never blows its own horn, as my grandfather used to say. I remember my grandfather, better to sit and be quiet and thought stupid than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Nobody likes hornblowers, do you? I mean, when you're lost or you're saved, do you like people who just sit around and toot their own horns? But know this, know this right off the bat. They're loveless people. They don't have love. Listen, Why I get around those people, I don't want to fellowship with them. I want to leave. Or I want them to leave. The Corinthians had a problem at this point. The Corinthian church was a bunch of spiritual show-offs. Totally inconsiderate of each other. All vying for public attention. Hmm. You know what is amazing? As, as I go through the letters, the two letters to the Corinthian church, there's no mention of an elder. 
presbyteros, a, a group of leadership. There's no leadership. Uh, if chapter 14, verse 26 says this, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done in edification. There's no leadership. There's nobody directing what is going on. I mean, think about it. If this morning, everybody who had a song decided they were going to sing their song. And if everybody said, well, I want to read Psalm 80. And somebody else says, well, I want to read Psalm 81. And if somebody was teaching on Galatians 2.20 and decided to teach on that. And if somebody had some goofy language that they want to throw into it. And we were all doing it at the same time. That was what was going on in the Corinthian church. And he says, unbelievers think you're nuts. And you know what? I would have thought they were nuts. And he finally says, tells the prophets at the conclusion of chapter 14, do something here. Do something. Get an organization here. Everyone started teaching, preaching, solos, duets, language. The Corinthian assembly was chaotic. It was insane. Here's the reason. Spiritual show-offs. The conceit, the arrogance which was in there was being verbalized. It was being verbalized. Everybody wanted to do his own thing. What is in the church today? Tell me what's in the church today. I have been in this community long enough that I've watched it. People, I call them spiritual gypsies. Well, we do it this way and you ain't going to do it that way. I'm going to go over here to this one. I know a group of people right now who move around to every new church plant is here. They try to go in. They want to go do their little thing. Well, I just don't think you've got to figure it out. And they leave. And they'll go, Let's go here. We'll start another one. We'll do another thing. We'll do another. And all they're doing is adding division and schism in the body of Christ. That's all it is accomplishing. It's all over the place. It's rampant. It's rampant. Everybody wanting to do it. Everybody vying for public attention. Everybody wanting to brag. And let me tell you something. This coming out of the mouth is geared to hurt others. That's all it's for. That's all it's for. I've heard some of the things people say about me. And it is geared to hurt me. That is all it is for. And you know what? I've gotten tough in the years. It is geared to wound others. It's bragging. Well, I'm going to do this. It is geared to make you stand out and to make others look inferior. And let me tell you something. It's easy. It is easy to fall into. Absolutely. Piece of cake to fall into. Look at it. Why is there such an obsession to have big churches, number-wise? And we believe that that... That is an accomplishment of what? Well, you know, my congregation is only a thousand. I only have five hundred in mine. You know, I sat in a, co- a conference one time where the guys were sitting there saying, "You know, I've, it was all sitting together. We were going to study uh, what is the bummer book? Um, Ecclesiastes." <laughs> well, <laughs> you read it. <laughs> Tell me, oh boy, I'm happy I read that thing. Um, I mean, that's on arrival with Job. And we sit in there, and it's all pastors. And I started listening to these guys. And they all start, well, tell us where you're from and what you do. And, you know, I'm, I'm Billy Bob Thornton from Thornton, Colorado. Uh, you know, um, I've been, I'm the 
preacher here. We we had 50 people. Now we got 250, and everybody went up and up and up. And you know, and I you know I started preaching, and and, and now we're at 500, and now I'm here, and we got a thousand. We'll do 1,100. And it came to me, and I said, we had 75, and we're down to 10. And, and it was true. And the problem was, my numbers weren't exaggerated. Listen, this church ain't big enough. I don't know who ain't here. I mean, I know how many baptisms I do a year. It ain't like I got a whole bunch of them. And I don't have to say, well, we did about uh, 30 when you did three. Listen, if you're a pastor, you know when you baptize. And you know what I find is funny about it? Every Sunday, there are 76,000 plus watching a bunch of guys with part of a pig. So how successful are you? They call it a football game. Right? Where I come from, Ohio, they got 125,000 who watch a pig. Guys run around with a pig. And so I am successful because I got 200? You're a failure. Get you a pig. I mean, if you really want to accomplish something, throw the football around. You'll draw a crowd. See, big doesn't really mean anything. But we like to speak of it. What is that? It comes out of, guess what I did? We all have a point in our lives that we can do that because almost everybody has one thing at least they can do fairly well. Right? I mean, I'm still looking for mine, but and I'm going to keep looking. There's got to be something out there I can do well. Okay. Uh, what it seems to be is ditch digging. <laughs> I'm not sure. That... Maybe I can start like a college course on it. Become a professor. I, I know a guy who got a degree in recreation. I have my master's in recreation. You have a master's degree in playing? How'd you do that? And why didn't they have that when I was in school? I'd have got my Ph.D. Okay, but everybody, everybody in this room has one thing, and maybe more, at least one thing that I can do okay, a little better. And you know what? Whatever it is, when you find it, you have this uncanny ability to let a few people know that you're good at it. Why is that? You want me to tell you what John MacArthur called it? I quote, It is just blinding self-centeredness in its desire to make someone else envious. Unquote. You know, John, when you're having a bad day, what? He's kind of cranky? A guy named Trumbull. Um, who had a huge impact on some of the greatest expositors that this planet has ever seen. Um, Dr. Stephen Olsford uh, had read him. Uh, John MacArthur had read him. Adrian Rogers had read him. I can go down a whole list. And they were all admired by this guy. This guy was an amazing preacher. Okay, But he's not known. Prolific writer. And here's a quote 
from one of his books that um, I read years and years ago. And as I was coming with this bragging thing, I thought of this because those men, a number of those men that I listed have had a tremendous impact on me. And so I read, you know, people like Graham Scroggy. Um, and who? He was Stephen Olford's professor, preaching professor. Anyway, um, so I read some of these guys. Here's what Trumbull said, quote, Every time I have the op- and I want you to listen to this. I really want you to hear this. Quote, Every time I have the opportunity to introduce the topic of conversation, it will always be of Jesus Christ. If God, you will give me the strength, unquote. Sure would cut down on the hot air, wouldn't it? I want you to think about that. When we open our mouths, it should be Jesus Christ, not us. Listen, if you learn that, you'll get away about talking about yourself. I listen to pastors, um, radio programs, TV shows, and I am appalled at how many do nothing but talk about themselves. What they have done, what they have accomplished. And, and every once in a while they'll say, oh, and God through me has... If you look at Christ Jesus, the person... If anybody had something to brag about, I'm thinking he did. I don't know. But you know what is amazing? Never. Never. Went through the Synoptic Gospels by Graham Scroggy. And that was one of the things I kept finding over and over. Listen, and so I went back and when I was pulling this thing together through the Gospel of John. I read the whole Gospel a couple times through just to kind of get a handle on this thing. And the Gospel of John is the Gospel that presents his deity. Okay? I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole Gospel because that's the whole Gospel. The, the whole book presents the deity of Christ. And you know what? I was amazed when I went back through this thinking about bragging, boasting. How many times... When his deity was exposed, he backs away from it and almost to the point of disclaiming anything. And yet he was God. I mean, Thomas said, you know, show us the Father. He said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Write this text down. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 49. I want you to think about this. Remember, I told you, 4 through 7 is the portrait of Christ. And you take the portrait and you hold it up to the mirror and see how you look. Chapter 12, verse 49, Gospel of John says this. I have not spoken of myself. Did you get that? Jesus is God incarnate, and He's only pointing to God the Father who is in heaven. That's all He did. Now then, I'm going to include the message. I want you to think about that text I just gave you, that verse I just gave you. 
All right, now, you, are you ready? This is the rubber hitting the road. This is the practical. This is the intensely practical part of it. How many of us can come to the end of one day and say, God, I have not spoken of myself. Just one day. If you haven't, then you don't have love. That's what Paul's saying. It's a nasty thought, ain't it? Only love can accomplish that. How many of us on a daily basis speak of self, flaunting our knowledge, flaunting our ability, flaunting our education, flaunting our gifts, flaunting self, so we can come off as fools behind boasting and bragging in a non-loving individual? See, I told you, long-suffering is easy. Kindness is easy. Jealousy is easy. This one here, everybody gets to hear. Right? I can fake patience. I can fake usefulness, kindness. I can fake not being jealous. How many of us can come to the end of one day and say, God, I have not spoken of myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have poured your love in our hearts by your spirit. The love who spoke existence into being. The love who incarnated itself to die for us. Father, I am overwhelmed by this. Father, help me. But Father, help the ears that hear. That Lord, in a country, in a society that oh so puffs itself up, that we who are here to be the portrait of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, would not fall into that trap. Lord, help us. Help us to overcome self. To your glory and to your praise, in Christ's name. Amen.